State political science students present In the Shadow of the Kremlin, a podcast covering state building, foreign policy, political economy, and civil society in the wake of the USSR. It's in my second one, so I'm just returning from the prior episode. Again, backgrounds, international relations, and a lot of close friends that are from the Russian-speaking world, and that kind of got me hooked. And I've come to find myself situated in the Russian geopolitical camp since. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, um, so I, I'm Matt Wade here. Um, I'm a poli-sci major focusing on Middle East, uh, Middle Eastern studies and Arabic. Um, I mean, I, I'd always been super interested in, in Russia. I initially, coming into school, thought that's what I was going to do. Um, ended up having a, a little bit of a switch, but um, it's always been super relevant. It, it's even relevant within the, the Middle East, uh, primarily Syria right now is a good example. Um, and I need an extra poli-sci course and I figured this, this would be pretty helpful. So, <laughs> yeah. Ah, I hear you. I've definitely been on that boat. Just <laughs> filling it out. And if it tags an interest, all the better. Yeah. <laughs> I can relate the the news segment is next did you have any particular news story that had like caught your attention or news um not a lot it mm-hmm. seems to be one of these um you know situations that it's always going to be relevant but not relevant enough to have something big happening if that makes any sense um, yeah it's like just on the edge of almost always turning into a major happening right yeah but it never actually i mean that there are some examples of of bigger incidents happening but never any real like status quo changers nothing major mm-hmm. um, so i mean everything i i've looked at news wise has been kind of same stuff going on no new yeah I, I guess sort of the only things i had found you know having been over there i tend to monitor it pretty closely or find sources that cater to that region um in general kyrgyzstan is like the only nominal nominal democracy in the area and they're like the least stable country politically and just recently last year toward the fall i think marked like their third or fourth popular revolution where they ousted the elected leaders so that kind of instability obviously has lingering effects and kind of feeds into this whole Fergana Valley situation since the eastern edge of it is in Kyrgyz territory. Um, And then just beyond that, uh, the past month and a half, I guess there was some sort of altercation, fairly widespread involving thousands of people. uh, And something like 1,100, 1,200 people were injured and several houses were burned down. And it's just kind of clashes between like the ethnic Kyrgyz and the Uzbeks and the Tajiks over water rights and, you know, agricultural bickering, you know, not to, not to put it mildly or like say it's, you know, childish, but kind of just the same old stuff. And, you know, right now a lot of the leaders of the country are questioning what's going to go on because they all see it as something that's coming to the boiling point. And they recognize that it's a complicated situation while at the same time 
wanting to resolve it in three months like that is the arbitrary and somewhat absurd timeline they've all put on it and i guess my question is does russia effectively step in like they have uh in the Nagana karabakh area right yeah um honestly i feel like it's kind of inevitable um like we've we've seen that this isn't going to kind of dissolve itself uh, I don't think the three countries involved or are going to be able to to do it without some sort of third party coming in. And I mean, who's better than, than Russia right there? Um, and I mean, from what I can understand, this really became a problem kind of because of Russia. Um, like, I mean, if we want to go back to like kind of the start of the, the borders and, and Stalin, um, seem to have kind of made these specifically to separate power. Um, but when you're under Soviet control, you know, you don't have uh, conflicting countries trying to buy for resources. I mean, it, it was relatively fluid. Um, so then now you go to the fall of the Soviet Union and these three countries are kind of kept with the same borders with some little disputes here and there and changing his hands um but they're kind of just in a mess and none of them are going to back down uh they own territory completely controlled by other ethnic groups um it, it's just an absolute mess and and they they're going to need some sort of mediation and i think that's a perfect place for russia to try to step in and solidify their their influence over the region um especially because i mean it feels like kyrgyzstan from what i've seen is kind of friendly with most people that they, they kind of have good relation with China. They have good relations with the U S and their yeah, military they're, base. They're not really in the position to be bickering with anyone. Yeah, um, yeah. Like they're not a political powerhouse. They're the smallest country, both by geography and population mm. in the region. And then militarily, it's just not even a comparison. They have like 15,000 active personnel, a budget of $15 million per year where like their neighbors are, three, four, five, ten times that. So yeah. no one really has the money to be throwing guns and bullets around, especially when you consider like it's a mountainous zone. So that always makes warfare drawn out and difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen report. I, I don't have exact data on here. Uh, you probably would know better, but from what I've seen, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan are basically the poorest countries in the region, right? Oh yeah. By a long shot. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how do you solve this issue without either warfare, which I don't think, especially those two countries could afford, um, mass displacements, which again, that would be extraordinarily costly. And I mean, ethnically or, um, yeah, ethically, that's a little bit gray. <laughs> um, well, and it, it kind of goes back to week seven and like the Laurel and was it, uh, I think that's how you pronounce the other author's name. We were talking about how, you know, you had alluded to earlier that a lot of these ethnicities and borders were kind of artificially conjured out of thin air. Not so much necessarily in the czarist times, but definitely in the Soviet Union. Um, and since 91, like these people have kind of taken it and ran with it. And so there might not be a lot of like ethnic ethnically distinguishable features or traits between 
any one or two peoples with the exception of the Tajiks because they're, they're similar to Persians. They, their language is actually in the Persian family. So they're, they're kind of their own unique thing, but the others um, are remarkably more similar than any of them would really want you to believe. And, and that's not to say that, you know, their sovereignty or nationhood, what that that's founded on is ridiculous. Um, but suffice to say, it, it's created this really bizarre attachment to the land that like they didn't have before, right? Because they're historically nomads. But at the same time, as you said, just uprooting people. Yeah, they were nomads, but there are also tribal issues. And so you stand to like kick up tribal issues that you see in the Middle East or that you saw in uh, like Albania during the civil wars, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of crazy. And something that uh, I don't know if it's, appropriate to say or not but i was reading in an article basically saying that before um stalin made these kind of territory the borders um you know that there was differences between these people but they were kind of just at least from everyone else kind of just considered the same sort of people um and you know they had their land and their land um you know no one stopped them from going to one side or the other no one's regulated what they did um, and they just kind of got along. And, and like you were saying, it wasn't until the fall of the Soviet Union where these kind of random borders that don't follow ethnicity, don't follow even like geographical, um, you know, um, areas like, and they, they did like embody these distinctions, which, you know, on the surface don't seem to be there much. And you, ha and you go up to, I don't know, is it Osh or Osh? Osh. Osh, yeah. I mean, the, the riots were between like two very nationalistic groups. Um, and I don't know, you, you rewind a few decades before, and I feel like the, those emotions just aren't there at all. Yeah, it's kind of like a microcosm of what's going on in Russia, where you have like the ethnification of the nationalist identity more so with each passing day, um, kind of going to Kultso's points in the in the readings and it's it's pretty worrisome uh when i was over there islam had experienced a resurgence you know because in under soviet rule you weren't allowed to be religious and these people had you know been stripped <clears throat> of the one thing that they had since they had been domesticated forcibly like the one thing they had left to them was spirituality and 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 then their quest to rediscover and connect with that um there's a lot of local flavor being injected into that area with Islam. For instance, like the Pakistanis, Turks, and Saudis are all interested in building mosques, and a lot of the people are not having it. Uh, there was a billboard there where it had women in like the traditional Saudi garb saying like, is this what you want for Kyrgyzstan? And absolutely not. And then someone was like trying to burn down a pro-Saudi mosque billboard the, the day or two before I left. Um, and you can, you can clearly tell the difference because you go by some of the graveyards in the countryside and anyone that's Orthodox usually has a cross above their site and Muslim graves for the most part had like a crescent, but you could always tell the more recent ones like the, the pre-Soviet or at least the era in which the Soviets, you know, weren't yet caring about the region and enforcing things because the crescent usually had a set of antlers entwined in it because it was more of a, like an animalistic 
religion, you know, from their, their tribal roots back when, you know, the Mongol tribes were all kind of semi-united. And they're definitely taking that route and trying to like find their own path within religion and within their own tribes and their people. And so it's just permeating everything they do. That's super interesting to be a, a group of people who kind of had religion taken away in a sense. And um, you reconcile that with a, a quickly spreading Islam. I mean, it was quickly spreading before, but um, a worry of it would be the quick spreading of um, extremism, uh, which I, I've read in quite a few articles on here um, about the fear more so than the actuality of becoming a hotbed for Islamic terrorism. Um, as far as I can see, there's really just uh, um, Hibs Uttarir, I think is, um, it's like a political party, basically. They're not necessarily a terrorist organization. It's more of just kind of a group of ideology that at the moment is relatively nonviolent, but they do believe in, um, you know, creating a caliphate and eventually, you know, through jihad expanding that. Um, so it, it's an interesting worry going forward, but I haven't seen a lot of that play out in a lot of, like, you would think with the violence happening with ethnic conflicts and everything, that that would be a, a strong, like, breeding ground for that. And you'd see Islam more involved. From my, like, looking at it, I haven't seen that much. Do you get the same kind of... Yeah, I think on one hand, Kyrgyzstan wants to to not highlight that. I don't think it's necessarily a problem in that country. That being said, historically, there have been instances where radicalized individuals pass through the Fergana Valley, like on one way to whatever country. And there have been several prominent instances where they've like passed through the Kyrgyz side of it and into Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan's you know, their their ruler has been really crafty and simultaneously evil in that, you know, when the war on terror got declared, he's like, oh, I can I can deal with my dissident population and just label them extremists. So there's that. And as you said, it, it is weird how the religion isn't necessarily featuring into the Fergana Valley thing. Um, I would say it's probably more of a concern from the Uzbek side. One, there is a genuine concern of extremism there. But two, uh, Uzbekistan is home to like two of the pillars of uh, ancient Islamic civilization, Bukhara and Samarkand, right? And so that that's sort of, if there is ever a place to, you know, quote unquote, restore the glory, that would be where it would originate, right? Yeah. And so uh, another kind of aspect, I when I look at the Fergana Valley, I kind of see it through three distinct lenses. You see the ethnic conflict, um, which is I mean, very visible with, you know, the riots, the conflicts, um, through a kind of a religious lens as well. But then it's also just, you know, borders and, and geopolitics and, and resources. Um, and looking at the map of the Fergana Valley is just super interesting because you just have, like, the three countries almost spiraling together. Like, it's... Like yin and yang and yang. Well, yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's border gore of the highest order. It's insane. That's, that's not to make light of it, but I mean, border yeah. gore is the only way to, to describe it. Yeah. 
and it's hilarious because they have um not only these you know weird blend but you have like these enclaves of territory that's not continuous the funniest one i could find funny just in how ridiculous it is uh i think you pronounce it socks uh i've seen spelling it or so yeah yeah right um it's technically uzbek territory if i'm correct completely surrounded by kyrgyzstan but it's 99 percent tajiks living there uh and it blows my mind (laughs) yeah it's it's this if i had to describe the fergana valley to any one person give them you know like the elevator pitch you know the too long didn't read summary it's that it's the fertile crescent of central asia meets like a three-way arab israeli conflict where ethnicity is more important than religion and water rights and agricultural rights are pretty much like the predominant thing and then when you throw the border gore on top of it it's just it's a hellish nightmare i mean (laughs) there's so many ways to cut it and it kind of goes to what i'm glad you brought up the the multiple lenses uh because it really spoke to what uh last week's or actually this week's class was with dr swan quinn when he was talking about how you have like these border rings and it's just you know multiple layers of an onion of sorts where you have corporations and people and governments and locales and tribes and all these things are like interacting and creating their own spaces and you know all the things you've said when you consider the number of spaces that are interacting here at any one level you know there may not be in the case of uh you know the mine in georgia there's not a corporate extractive element but there's you know three governments that are all trying to be players in central asia there's dozens of tribes there's i guess one religion but depending on how you define it numerous aspects of religion and and all the water rights there's just infinite number of ways to come at this and i think that's what's made it simmer for so long is there is no good way to cut it at all right yeah it's it's super interesting because it's uh like you used the um like islands archipelagos as the the metaphor there what they have essentially done uh, them being the three countries it feels like is uh you know raise the water level there right so the borders are even more distinct you have very distinct islands you know um i've seen multiple cases of uzbekistan just closing the borders kind of randomly um i mean they're very hard it feels like the only solution here not that we're gonna fix the fergana valley in this podcast right here um but you know if you can't fight over it if you can't just displace everyone um it feels like lowering that water level would be the way to go you know make it so people can drive across the border see their family on the other side work wherever they want um make it more fluid um and and still have the border so that the governments can still keep their precious parts of the resources and you know like the water rights is a huge huge part of it and it reminds me a lot of um like pakistan india and kashmir uh to some extent this one just has i mean i guess that technically has china in it a little bit but this is more of a three-party um problem i mean like water we kind of i feel like take it for granted here 
water is super important, um, especially in, you know, this fertile area that, you know, that agriculture depends on it. And, um, well, and, and what makes it worse too, is that one of the legacies of the Soviet era is that Uzbekistan basically through no fault of their own historically, but to this day, they've definitely doubled down on it is that the Soviets, one of the things they used to fund their government through the cold war was cotton exports. And the one area where cotton was really conducive to growing is Uzbekistan. So they just went all like all the chips in on cotton monoculture and it has completely wrecked the countryside. And so to extract cotton or any other resource just requires like exponentially more water, exponentially more manpower, exponentially more equipment. And so the Uzbeks are just still caught in, you know, this self-imposed resource trap or curse of a sort and they're more sensitive than anyone to the water, really. The Fergana Valley may not necessarily be the key issue to them, but the water access that is provided by that locale that would help their monoculture is critical, right? Because you could effectively starve off the whole country's economy. Right. Going to you, how how do we fix this? What well, what happens? You know, you mentioned Russia. Does Russia have to play? Do you, do you think Russia has to play a role? Can they figure it out themselves? What, what's the set forward here? Well, I think sort of the big obstacle, you know, thinking back to say the Pisano and Simonyi piece that discusses the border situation. And, you know, as we read the differences between Ukraine, EU or China, Russia, I don't think that's necessarily as big of a problem. A, a lot of, you know, the, the bureaucratic and transportation infrastructure was inherited from the Soviet Union. A lot of the customs were, were inherited, right? Um, so to me, the sticking point is regime type, where it's Kyrgyzstan, as I said earlier, nominal democracy, Tajikistan, republic of sorts. Uh, it got it fought a brutal civil war through the 90s. I mean, some of the stuff that went on in Yugoslavia was like a drop in the bucket compared to what happened in parts of Tajikistan. And then Uzbekistan is just this iron-gripped dictator that I would easily rank like the top 10 worst leaders or sort of authoritarian regimes on the planet. And, and so you just have this, like, this sliding scale of kind of okay to just degradingly worse. And until that can get sorted out, I don't know that things calm down. And maybe maybe the Uzbek leader has to um, pass on, you know, as far as like step down or, you know, die and someone takes his place. Uh, but ultimately, the great game is being played there between the U.S., China, and Russia are such that the United States really doesn't want either of the other two to have a grasp on power. And in the past 20 years, the United States government for better or worse has really sort of enabled the Uzbek regime to just get away with some ridiculous things. And perhaps, you know, I, I agree. I do think Russia could step in. They have a decent enough relationship with the other parties and the maybe the funds to do it these days. I don't know, but definitely the, the military power. Um, <clears throat> China won't allow it. 
plus they you know they're concerned about if that forgotten valley situation blows up over is just kind of dead in the water uh but i honestly think the the united states needs to reinforce state building and democracy in tajikistan figure out how to economically prop up kyrgyzstan so that it's not so it's kyrgyzstan is so economically poor because they don't have much um you know they don't have much for natural resources you know the tajiks can use dams for electricity and there's some gold other metal mines um like i said the uzbeks have the cotton they have some pretty good agriculture otherwise there's some some gas in uzbekistan not a lot uh, but yeah, Kyrgyzstan kind of needs to be propped up economically or figuring out how to not necessarily give it artificial stilts, but to get the economy going and self-sustaining. Uh, and then in Uzbekistan, like I said, the U.S. really needs to lean hard on them because of that, if that whole region goes up, I mean, it's, it's disastrous. Uh, you know, people will think, oh, well, there's no one and nothing there. And I, well, that's not true. There are 6 million people in Kyrgyzstan for a state that's roughly the size of Montana, which is six times the population of Montana, right? So. So to add a little bit of a curveball here, um, you're talking about how these countries need some sort of economic development here. Um, and in comes China with their, if we go back a couple weeks ago, uh, on the whole idea of Eurasia um, with kind of Russia and China vying for power there, but also this uh, idea of the new Silk Road that they're developing. Um, from the maps that I can see of that, it, it, I don't know if it goes directly through the Fergana Valley, but it gets pretty close. Um, and, you know, if these countries are needing economic investment um, and China is willing to spend it, do you think that that is going to be like the next big thing that happens that that can shape um, the, the politics of the region. Um, Cause if they're only going to go through, you know, Kyrgyzstan or that they're going through Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, like does that drastically change the balance of power? Are they all going to have to work together? Does China take more interest in keeping everything diplomatic and not erupting? does Russia then have to force its way in to stop China from being, you know, too powerful in the region? Uh, how, how do you think that impacts going forward? That's a really good question. Um, from what I recall, I think there's at least some sort of peripheral branches of Ober that run through, if not directly skirt the Fergana Valley for no other reason than, it is an extremely productive area, agriculturally speaking. And if the whole point is to get buy-in by saying, hey, we're gonna build this highway, but also you can ship whatever goods you have on this highway to make money down the road so that you know China can in turn get this thing funded to ship its own goods and get them sold down the road. Um, the Fergana Valley is just too important to like commercially ignore. And that is a huge sticking point because uh, the Chinese aren't necessarily trusted, at least in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, there have been a lot of projects where they've come in with Chinese financing and then all of a sudden at the last second, like, oh, all Chinese workers are working on this. And, and you know, it's not without good reason, right? It's it's hurting their economy. But at the same time, you know, if everyone's in the Fergana Valley and that's involved in it, needs to benefit from it, 
China kind of has to manage those relationships of, you know, like, hey, you get water so you can grow stuff, but also you need to have enough water over here in Tajikistan to sell energy. And I don't know that they can juggle it. You know, they may have the money, but just uh, the the sheer scope of the One Belt, One Road initiative is such that when you start considering that it's not just the Fergana Valley, it's going to be the pipelines in the Caspian, it's going to be dams in, you know, Cambodia, it's going to be shipping ports all across, you know, the South Asia and all the, the sort of herding of cats, as it were, across the whole th- structure. I don't know that China is remotely capable of doing it diplomatically or at an institutional level. Um, and so that I could see where Russia would foist themselves upon the situation, not, not to sort of spoil China's plans, but if they see the writing on the wall that making nice with the West isn't an option, so they have to pivot to Asia, but they don't want to be the junior partner. That could be like their leverage, right? I don't know if that fully answers it. That's pretty close. <laughs> I mean, who can really say what's going to happen going forward, you know? Um, I mean, there's a reason that this hasn't been solved yet. There's a reason that it there hasn't been progress from what I can see. Um, since 91, it, it seems to just kind of keep going downhill or, or at least just kind of stay where it is. Well, and that's kind of the thing I was mentioning earlier with the, the military budgets and personnel is no one is really in any sort of position to do anything. Like, sure, the Uzbeks maybe, but just from a money perspective, fighting in the mountains is hell. I mean, it's the the logistics pretty much drive the cost through the roof and no one has the money to do it. So maybe that's kind of what's kept the lid on it is no one has the economic potential to dump into the military to change the status quo, which is something Ober could unintentionally do, right? Like if all of a sudden Tajikistan relative to its neighbors becomes pretty wealthy and prosperous, maybe, maybe Tajikistan says this is ours now. Who knows? And Kyrgyzstan can't stop them. They, they literally have no air force, not a single jet. So yeah, I mean, the military option is, is honestly like suicide. Um, it, you can't do anything with it. Um, you could take the Fergana Valley pretty easily if, if you beefed up, any three of them beefed up the military. But, I mean, like you said, they don't have the money to do that. And then you have to, you know, is Uzbek going to go invade the rest of Kyrgyzstan? No, like it, it's completely mountainous. Um you know, it, it's kind of like the uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan situation where for a while they they were relatively kind of balanced militarily. But like we saw um, with the presentation that last week, two weeks ago, um, Azerbaijan ended up being miles ahead of Armenia and they won the conflict pretty easily. Um, that's not going to happen here. Uh, I mean, um, unless, you know, like the China's investments prop up one country over the other and you have a huge switch of a balance of power, uh, an exception of something drastic like that, the militaries aren't going to be buffed up enough to do anything. Um, 
so yeah, I, I honestly don't see a military conquest anytime. I don't see a political um, solving of the situation unless you have a, a big third party like Russia coming in and, and trying to help out. And so it, it's hard to say that this conflict isn't just going to continue to fizzle. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, unlike the Armenia Azerbaijan issue, it's, that's a two way thing. We saw how messy things got in Yugoslavia, right? And we know how hard it is to fight in Afghanistan. Now, mar marry the two. What, what world power or group of world powers goes, I'm going to stick my hand in that. And so yeah, you, no one's you that. yeah, you really have to preempt it, I think, for it to not just be a disaster all around. And I, I, ultimately, I think someone's going to have to kind of foot the bill morally or financially or militarily and just kind of be like, okay, what borders can we live with? What water agreements can we all live with? And yeah, trying to solve it amongst themselves. And, you know, to these nations credit, it hasn't all been sort of an insulated effort where it's just the three heads butting without anyone else involved. Um, I do think that a lot, a lot of the more powerful nations should probably take a, an interest in stepping in, you know, obviously on invitation, not forcing their way, but because what's what the alternative, eventually something is going to give, right? So in, in your opinion and from, from your research into this, is there a third party that they all trust equally? Um, would that be Russia or um, I guess Uzbekistan doesn't seem to, I don't know. So um, they yeah, may all trust Russia. That being said, they're all, they all have like their own history and baggage uh, either recently or even dating back to sort of the czarist period. And that was for the most part, a relationship where it's like, just pay taxes and fly our flag and we'll leave you alone for the most part because you're, you're the defensible border, right? You're on the world's edge of mountains. The, we, there's like not much there. You do you. Uh, it wasn't quite so live and let live, but comparative to other times probably. Uh, suffice to say, sure, yeah, there, there's a proximity and a shared relation there. I do think there are some soured elements. Uh, China, there's a lot of issues there. The U.S., I think, unfortunately, because of the way it's handled, sort of the situation of letting Uzbekistan kind of run roughshod over its people, that has soured a lot of attitudes. Uh, whether how widespread that is, I don't know. I could see India, of all people, if India becomes you know, like another superpower. Uh, I could see them doing it because they are truly neutral for the most part, right? You know, what rivers or what, what do they have to lose or gain from it, right? At the same time, they are in the region, they counterbalance Russia, they counterbalance China. And so that might enable the log jam to sort of break. And then, you know, they also come from the perspective of, hey, we've dealt with these situations before. We have the Kashmir, we have the Hindu Kush, like we know all about this. We understand how difficult it is. I think India of all players could really actually do something serious. Doesn't that experience also show that they don't know how to deal with it? <laughs> well, I mean, 
yeah, I guess it's one thing to negotiate the situation in the Fergana Valley where everyone kind of has a squirt gun relative to Pakistan and India who are both, you know, nuclear powers, right? So perhaps just a little more difficult when there's an atomic weapon aimed at your head. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. I, I never really thought of, of India when I, when I was going into this. Um, I don't know how much China would like India getting involved, especially if they do have interest in developing the region. Um, but may, maybe that would be for the best, like a, a neutral party, sort of like a, I mean, it's not entirely, but I think of like Palestine and Israel going over to, to Norway with the Oslo Accords, um, just because Norway completely doesn't care at all. They have no interest. Yeah. Um, We're going to eat like our, our bland cuisine and <laughs> fish for whales. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, something like India would be a, a very interesting development. I don't know how likely it yeah, is. Yeah, I think it depends on sort of their economic prospects and Perhaps if they can iron some things out with Pakistan. Uh, and I, now that I think about it, that would be the one thing, the, the Pakistan issue, ironically enough, would be like the one thing they stand to gain is by fixing that, they might be able to blunt Pakistani influence as far as the Islamic front goes. You know, because as I had said earlier, there's the Turks, the Pakistanis, the Saudis, all sort of vying for religious hegemony. And that's fairly minor in the grand scheme of things. Honestly, I think Pakistan really, they're not even really a contender compared to the Turks and the Saudis financially in that regard. Um, so, yeah. And oh. uh, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. Plus they have their own Muslim population in India, right? So they're used to sort of dealing with that and, and the, the intricacies of those. Uh, ladies. You, you mentioned the uh, kind of, Islam component there and, and Pakistan's involvement. Would you think though that if India was trying to get involved, that involvement from Pakistan would um, kind of really increase and if not turn a little bit violent? Because uh, we, we've seen Pakistan's use of Islam and militia groups to go into other countries. Like that's kind of their thing. That's what they do in Kashmir all the time. Um, so if they viewed India who, you know, they absolutely hate uh, gaining influence in this region, especially if they're, you know, they might not be the biggest contender, but they have something to say about it. Um, do you think that could just increase the tension there and then bring it back to Kashmir? Yeah, in a sense, I think it does. Um, sort of the complicating factor for Pakistan is that Tajiks are culturally and ethnically Persian. So they, they, they bear very, very remarkable similarities to sort of what's going on in Iran. Uh, perhaps not so much religiously, but that shared heritage does give Iran influence in the region. And I would think Pakistan would know better or at least recognize that being so ham-fisted with that discussion on Islam that Iran would be like, no, right? Because they don't want their brethren, the Tajiks, to, to suffer uh, or to sort of be slighted in any way. Because uh, they are, you know, Iran's concern is, if not them, who's the Islamic influence? 
well, perhaps they can live with the Turks. They definitely can't live with Saudi influence and Pakistani influences somewhere in the middle, I would probably argue. Um, so yeah, I would think Pakistan would definitely recognize that, you know, being too vocal about it would draw the wrong sort of attention. And that really, what do they have to gain from being the, the main Islamic influence in it, right? You know, they're not, they, you can have aspirations. Sure, that's one thing, but like being able to act on them is another. That's a good point. Um, do you know much about the, like the political relationship between Tajikistan and Iran? Um, given that they are kind of similar culture, Persian language, um, but Tajikistan is, is primarily Sunni. Um, compared to a, a Shia Iran like do they get along or are, are they friends are they uh, my understanding is that they get along it's the the coursework that I did over there and sort of the stuff I've come across in my own efforts since then uh, it's not as tenuous as you would think despite like the sectarian differences I think the shared cultural and historical heritage overcomes a lot of that because the Iranian regime and definitely to a great extent that people do realize sort of what a precarious situation they are in uh, globally speaking. Um, there are an insane amount of Iranian goods in that part of the world. I mean, you go into any convenience store, it's probably any, depending on where you're at uh, in the villages, probably not so much, but in the larger cities, 15 to 25% of it's probably made in Iran from what I remember, you know, fruits, veg, beverages, little tools. Right. And I, I don't know to what extent, you know, Iran is offloading itself against sanctions in that area or whether it's just permissible, you know, maybe, maybe the powers that be that have the sanctions don't really care. Right. But, uh, most of those goods are probably coming through Tajikistan, if I had to guess. So that kind of adds a little bit of an interesting dynamic. What's stopping from Iran being that third party that comes, or I guess in this case, fourth party, um, given that all three nations are Islamic? Um, I mean, they might not get along, might, you know, they're different sects, um, but they are Islamic. They already have economic ties. They have some sort of religious ties. Um, is it just that there would be fear that they'd be more friendly to their brethren in um, Tajikistan or are they just too focused elsewhere? Do, do you think there's any chance they, they could be that negotiator? I think perhaps the recognition of the ties between the Tajiks and the, the Iranians would take a backseat to financial issues. Like does Iran have the financial, the political or the diplomatic capital to do it given sort of their pariah status. And as you said, Kyrgyzstan really tries to be buddy buddy with most nations and I, I think that a lot of people on the ground and the leaders in Kyrgyzstan realize that barring some shift in the, the global situation where Iran is more habilitated into the world order than it is now, 
um, that essentially engaging with them on such a level would be a fairly radioactive prospect, you know, no pun intended, but, um, and you know, Hey, that may be the thing too, is like maybe if Iran can prove that it's not pursuing the bomb and that it is just kind of this big, haha, JK guys, we're not actually that belligerent, um, nuclear power, right? What does nuclear power do to the region? Because now you're not so concerned over who's controlling flows of what waterways to generate power and how that affects agriculture. When you were doing your, your, your research, did you come across anything else that we haven't really touched on that you found interesting? No, this, this kind of hits most of the points. Um, it's bizarre because as we've danced around time and time again, it is this really severe issue that stands to have some pretty dire consequences. And yet there are all these, I won't say they're peripheral issues, but there are all these issues related to, or more than tangentially, uh, approximated to Fergana Valley that kind of take the front seat, right? You know, it's the war on terror with Uzbekistan. It's what's going on with the gas fields in Kazakhstan. Um, and the, I think in part that goes back to what I was saying about the border situation and sort of the, the cross-cultural on-the-ground effects of exchanging through the borders, maneuvering through life, and that sort of Pisano Samoyi article was getting at what I was referring to is the regime differences make it so unstable and borderline innavigable. And yet that's kind of the main concern at the same time, right? Is what happens when the Kazakh president dies and you know, he's president for it's, it's basically a, again, a microcosm of Russia is what happens when Putin dies. Uh, who knows? Right. Uh, all these guys that took over were in charge when the Soviet Union was collapsing. Um, Turkmenistan, the one that never gets mentioned, makes North Korea look like a joke as far as cult of personality goes. The Kim family would be actually jealous of what's going on in Turkmenistan. It's disgusting. Uh, the guy that rules Turkmenistan is the dentist of the former dictator. I mean, you cannot make that up. And that's just the sort of stuff. Like, how does that destabilize the situation, right? Is how do we transition that I think is sort of the bigger conversation. And there, there are a lot of summits in Kyrgyzstan, a lot of NGOs working for, you know, development of civil society. And on one hand, they're kind of keeping to the Kyrgyz locale while simultaneously trying to figure out how to do it elsewhere in the region. Because I think perhaps maybe that's the bigger issue than Fergana is how does this bizarre web of regime discrepancies create instability that makes Fergana worse or that makes it irresolvable, right? That's big. That's deep. <laughs> that's a kind of a systematic issue. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's kind of makes you take a step back and like, okay, you, you know, this isn't just uh, a problem with, you know, um, the border gore sucks. There's some ethnic issues. Like it, it, it's really even bigger than that. 
that's like the reason that it's not being solved. This has been In the Shadow of the Kremlin, a podcast by K-State Poli-Sci students. We'd like to thank both our hosts and many guests for this segment, as well as our listeners. We'll see you for the next installment.